Hello and welcome to The Whole Life, the podcast that seeks to connect the Christian story with just about everything. My name is Paul Woolley. And I'm Grace Fielding and today we are talking about politics. It's a big year for politics. In November, the US will elect its president and there'll also be a general election here in the UK at some point. But what, you might be asking, actually is politics? And to what extent does the Christian story underpin a liberal democracy? Another question we might have is how have Christian ideas shaped the ideology of political parties? And maybe more basically than that, what does any of this have to do with us? Interesting questions, Grace. I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Incidentally, would you describe yourself as political? Um, that is a great question, Paul, and I might as well be honest as we start. Um, and I suppose the answer to that is not hugely. Um, growing up, I have a brother who studied politics at university, who um, probably rightfully, but sometimes rather annoyingly dominated conversation in our household around politics. Um, but that being said, I do always try and engage with what's going on and sort of keep up with things. But I think um, perhaps like many other people can relate to, I think events of the last few years in politics have left me, how can I say, sort of maybe a bit bewildered. Um, so I'm looking forward to today's conversation. It's going to be interesting, isn't it? Um, I'm speaking, incidentally, from uh, one of the bellwether constituencies in England. It's blue just now but it needs to turn red if Keir Starmer has any chance of entering Downing Street. I will leave listeners to guess what constituency this is. Anyway, we have an absolutely brilliant guest for us today. He divides his time between the UK and the US. His latest book is A Primer in Christian Ethics, Christ and the Struggle to Live Well. It was published at the end of last year, joining us from the Divinity School at Duke University in Durham, North California, that would be nice, Carolina, is Luke Bretherton. Luke, it's great to have you with us. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolute delight and honour to be with you, Paul and Grace. Let's um, get straight to the point then, Luke. Uh, Biden or Trump? <laughs> well, uh, probably neither. <laughs> <laughs> if uh, if kind of the politics of nostalgia is your guide to how to vote, then do you want a kind of old school social democracy or a old school kind of nationalist vision of 1950s America? Uh, and I'm not sure either of those is that compelling. Um, that was a masterful politician's answer, Luke, if, I, if I may be so bold. What about the UK situation? Would the same apply? Sunak or Starmer? Uh, I think the Tories have kind of run out of steam. So even those diehard uh, conservatives. Um, but I think my honest answer to that is I would vote for a Conservative Party if there was a Conservative Party and I would vote for a Labour Party if there was a Labour Party. I'm not sure we have versions of either. That is a brilliant answer. So we will get into that very soon. I suppose it is one of the challenges, isn't it, of contemporary politics is... Um, just the choice it's it's sort of a false choice or there's you know there's nowhere to go it it struck me a number of years ago that in the states particularly if you were someone who on the whole were pro gun control and you were opposed to the death penalty and you could be characterized as pro life where do you go with that i mean yeah. what do you do yeah no i think that's a i think that's the i think the 
the the realities of people's political commitments do not match the party political options that we're currently given. And so I think the old kind of left-right divides don't really marry to the actual ways people's political commitments work out. And so people are having to shoehorn um, quite diverse and divergent commitments. But I think that's, I'm not sure that's a new feature. I think that we have this, we have inherently we have kind of political parties which are themselves funny amalgams of different kind of positions trying to appeal to people who are complex creatures with divided loyalties and have commitments to the land and commitments to animals and commitments to people and family and friends which pull them in all sorts of different directions and so there's always a element of prudential judgment what what is different i think is an increasingly brittle and fractured politics which refuses the reality of human beings as complex creatures with multiple loyalties and i think that that's our part of our real problem today is we can't cope with the the realities and complexities of what it means to be human in our current political environment that's so interesting, Luke. Let's step back from that a little bit and just think about broad definitions. Uh, we've talked about politics, but what actually is politics? How would you define that? So, yeah, politics, I think, you know, we can get when most people think about politics, they think about party politics that we've just been discussing, or we think about our news feeds or our social media feeds. Um, but beyond the kind of question of backroom deals and policy debates and rage tweets, I think is a very, very, very basic fact, which is politics is really the alternative to, to one of three other options of what we do when we meet someone we disagree with, we find threatening, we don't like, who's different to us. And when, when we meet someone like that, which is in an absolute inevitability when you step beyond your hearth or your family, is you're going to meet people you dislike, you disagree with, who you, know, uh, you find threatening. And so you can do you can do one of four things. You can either kill them, uh, very straightforward, plenty of that going on in the world today. You can either create a system to coerce them or dominate them so you don't have to listen to them. You can get them to do what you want. Again, plenty of systems around the world that do that today and throughout human history. Uh, or you can make life so difficult for them, you persecute them, you terrorize them, uh, that you cause them to flee, you cause them to run away. And again, Plenty of that going on, as we see with the mass migration around the world. Um, or you can do politics. You can, do, you can negotiate some kind of common life amid different visions of what it means to flourish as a human, asymmetries of power and uh, different kind of interests without killing, coercing or causing others to flee. And those really are the only options. And when you we, we get very confused about this and we have all sorts of technocratic debates about this and the other and constitutional debates and the rest of it, but that's really what it boils down to. And that's kind of what we've lost sight of. Politics is the alternative to killing, coercing and causing others to flee. And we have to, as human beings and as Christians, we should this shouldn't be a problem for us to, to understand, as Christians, we're mutually vulnerable creatures who cannot live, let alone live well, without others. So if we're going to live well, or just live, survive, let alone thrive, we've got to form a common life with others. And we've got to do that. And politics is the name we give for the, 
way we negotiate and sustain that common life. And there are kind of grand terms for this, the common wealth, the raised public, if we want to go Latin, the public things, the public life. But these are all just other terms for common life, which we can't be human. That is, we can't survive, uh, let alone thrive as human animals without politics. And Aristotle's great succinct kind of formulation of this is to be human is to be a political animal. We Mm. have to do politics to be this kind of creature. So I suppose in that sense, and I know Paul asked me at the start, you know, would I consider myself political? But actually, from what you're saying, it sounds like we all are political to an extent by nature. And, and actually, that's the that's a more positive solution to other forms of disagreeing with each other. Or um, I wanted to actually ask you in terms of, um, I think we maybe some of us have heard this this phrase, you know, that politics being a sort of necessary evil in the world um how would you respond to that because from what you've said it actually sounds like you're sort of presenting it as actually quite a, a positive solution um yeah yeah I think I think so I think I think we we as I said we can't do human life without politics so people who think it's an option are you know that that's a fantasy mm-hmm. um we are always engaged so whether it's you know I, I live in a cul-de-sac and the kids you know, making a lot of noise and I'm trying to work, I can either call the police, which is I invoke some kind of source of controlling them, uh, or I can go out and say, oh, guys, can you keep it down a bit? I'm trying to work. I And there's a trust there and a relationship there. I'm doing politics. I'm, I'm negotiating a shared life. We're sharing the same space. We're living in the same place. We're trying to do different activities and we're trying to navigate a, a common life with different interests and um, different visions of what flourishing in that neighborhood involves. So that that's politics. Um, we don't think of that as politics, but that's politics. Uh, and um, and and you know, if you're in a firm uh, and you're negotiating without recourse to the law, that's a kind of politics. You're you're engaging in the shared life of the firm. Uh, elders or and pastors or the PCC and the and the minister you know working out whether to take the pews out of a out of the sanctuary or not very contentious issue in most churches uh, they're doing politics yeah. um it goes wrong when there's schism that's a christian version of a failure of politics or they start persecuting each other or they start killing each other again lots of examples of that in christian history but but the negotiation of a shared church life that's a form of politics and we have pccs and synods and convocations and all sorts of ways of institutionalizing that of engaging in dialogue rather than killing coercing or persecuting others so i don't i don't we can't do we can't do life without doing politics and unfortunately we tended to over identify politics with statecraft mm-hmm. which is things like party politics laws government bureaucracies that kind of thing but that's just one dimension of politics it's not the fullness of politics and I, i'm trying to recover a sense of politics as a as a, a as a moral good, and as an as the most basic way we pursue any kind of good, whether that's education, uh, sewage works, you know, uh, farming. You you can't pursue any good if there isn't some kind of peaceable form of association, as we see in Ukraine, as we see in Israel, Palestine, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. When there's a breakdown of forms of forming a common life, then everything else quickly goes to hell. You, you can't, whether it's the supply of potable water or, you know, the pursuit of schooling, you can't pursue these other goods without doing the good of politics. 
So would you say that it's, if we, if we sort of go back to Genesis, would you say that politics, however we want to sort of um, speak about it, was part of God's kind of creative, created and creative order for the world then? Yeah, no, great question. I mean, I think, so there's, there's a big debate about this in the Christian tradition um, and how to kind of read the Genesis. It's sometimes it's kind of two great figures, Augustine and Aquinas, is sometimes kind of divided up in that. I think it's not quite true of either of them. But the basic debate is this, is uh, if we look at politics, do we see it as part of Genesis and then it get, we have the fall and so we have fallen form of politics? Or does politics kind of come in after the fall and therefore, politics is about the restraint of evil mm-hmm. rather than the promotion of the good. Um, and a lot follows from that. I kind of split the difference. I think politics as the negotiation of a common life is there in Genesis. That's the, that's the formation. And it's taken up and fulfilled in the New Jerusalem and New Creation, uh, the city of God. That's a political community in all the language of the church. Uh, of Israel, uh, is of the people of God. These are political terms, all the language used in the New Testament, liturgia, ecclesia, these are all political terms. You can't talk about what it means to be the redeemed people of God outside of political terms. So I think politics is, is there, but statecraft, the use of sovereign and coercive force to restrain evil and to promote the good, is a post-lapsarian, a post-fall thing. So I think when we think about politics in this more basic terms of as the moral good of association and how we do that through politics, that's there in Genesis because we're so, we're made as social animals to be with, to live with and for others um, as part of a divine human relation. And, and so the ideal then is communion and that actually is a political relation but after the fall, we come in with coercion and violence and domination, and that needs to be restrained through modes of statecraft and law and things like that. So I think if you if we have this more kind of granular understanding of politics as there's politics as a social practice through which we form a common life and build trust, and then modes of statecraft through which we institutionalize that, law, bureaucracies, et cetera, government, um, I think that second bit is is post uh, is after the fall. Mm. So I think um, I think I think that's really interesting. I hadn't thought of it in those kind of the two different types, I suppose, of, of politics and, and and some being for good and some being for. I think you sort of more about kind of restraint. Um, mm. And I suppose thinking about the fall and some of I think a lot of people now would look at the state of politics in in sort of the state terms and just think, gosh, it is it's so broken I don't even know where to turn who can I trust um so yeah could you maybe speak a bit sort of how how broken is our politics in sort of western western liberal politics terms um in you know 2024 um and what sort of how have we got here I know that's a a huge question but what maybe are some of the reasons that um that we've got here yeah so I think it's I I I think two, two things to say uh, about that is one is I think we need to resist what I what I call kind of either ascension narratives. So things are getting better. That's a kind of progressive narrative. Yeah. Uh, we, we're we're leaving behind the heteropatriarchal racist colonial past and think we're moving ever onward forward. Or 
thing or a declension narrative. Things are just getting worse. Things are going to the world's going to hell in a handcart. It was all fantastic in 1955 or 1855 or 1755, whatever your point of idyllic, bucolic <laughs> ideal, you know, pushback is. And it's all gone, you know, it's all gone downhill since. So the, ne- neither of those are Christian narratives. Christ is the center of history. Christ divides history. And Christ is made present to all present, all times by the work of the Spirit. And we can participate in Christ in any time. And so there's no, we, as Christians, we shouldn't tell story declension or ascensionist narratives because Christ is the center of history and we read history from Christ backwards and forwards. Um, so I think that's a very, very fundamental. We, ha- we have absolutely terrible philosophies of history and a lot of Christian political thinking over the millennia really centers on this question is how is how does God act in history and how are we related to God through history? Um, and so I think that sounds very meta, but it's we see this play out, you know, and you see it play out in our politics at the moment of a kind of I mean sitting in America. So make America great again. I we have to go back to make the world come out all right. Or it's a story of you're on the wrong side of history. You've got to go forward and everything of the past is bad and needs to be left behind. And in either of those cases, uh, when we're having a political debate, we're not having a political debate about tax differential policies and prudential judgments about, well, I think it's a bit more like this. No, actually, I think we need a bit more market or a bit more state or whatever it is. We're having a metaphysical debate. If you're on the wrong side of history, you're not we're not having an argument about policy, you have the wrong, you have the wrong state of being, you shouldn't exist in the world. And as we saw in the history of the 20th century, we know what that happens, that leads to gulags and death camps and death squads, because people who have the wrong kind of being shouldn't exist. And equally, if you if you if you're, if you don't conform to the world as it was and should be, and and if we're going to go back to that world, and you're and you don't conform to that, then again, you shouldn't exist. So it's a metaphysical conflict. So I think, that is really lies at the heart of our contemporary and, and politics really divides. And on, and on a Christian account, um, you know, if we think about it in terms of baptism and conversion, in baptism, you recover a self that was lost uh, through sin and idolatry, and you're born again into an eschatological self, a, a, a kingdom self that's given by the Spirit. And so Christian Christian understanding of existence in time and history is always one of recovery uh, and new beginning of re- of of uh, renewal and revolutional rupture. And again, with that lovely verse in Matthew, we're salt and light. We both uh, keep and preserve what is good, and we point the way in the darkness to what is coming. And so, I think a lot of our brokenness is because we just tell very bad stories mm. about our political environment. Mm. And we can't see in any period in history, including our own, there's good things, there's things to preserve, and there's bad things which need changing. And you're always, Samuel Taylor Coleridge, wonderful poet and Anglican theologian, had a great line about any hum, a humane politics always involves a dance between preservation and progress. And we've lost that ability to kind of see the world and those times we want to divide it up. So I think that's one thing. Just just quickly, and I'm probably going on too long, but um, but I think there are part of part of related to that, which is in this the second point, is I think um 
because we've lost this more ancient and moral understanding of politics that I kind of talked about earlier, we tend to make the mistake of thinking politics is reducible to either it's all about a procedure, kind of technocratic procedure, and there's left and right versus it should all be about the market or should be all about rights. It's not. It's that that could be part of it, but it's not the whole of it. Or we think it's all about ideology and we have our ideological checklist and either people conform or don't conform to that. Um, uh, and again, there's left and right versions of that. Or uh, we make it all about identity. And, and the right version of that is the identitarianism of family, faith and flag. And the left one is the identitarianism of gender, sexuality and, and race. Um, and so because, and again, all of those things can inform and shape our politics, but we should never reduce politics to those things. And I think part of our experience of this brokenness is these highly reductive scripts and forcing the world, forcing, as I said before, complex creatures with multiple loyalties into one of these highly reductive scripts, which distort reality. And, and people's disenchantment with politics is they go, that's just not me. Like, I don't, I'm not reducible to my identities. I'm not reducible to some dreadful proceduralism. I'm not reducible to this rather identikit ideological script. I, I, I have, I, I love my friend who has odd views on pro-life issues. And I love my friend who, like, and people have all sorts of, you know, cross, cross-committing loyalties that are, those scripts don't enable you to inhabit. Um, and so I think that, what story tell about how we live in time and the reduction of our politics to these very brittle scripts um, that, re that reduce our humanity, uh, I think is part of our problem at the moment. Mm, that's so helpful, Luke. Um, confession time. I mean, not for you, for me. Um, the first, although very happy to kind of extend it. Um, I definitely have a propensity to the declension uh, approach um, and yeah I mean 1850 sounds pretty good to me um, that sense of and, and and emphasis on preserving or conserving that which is good and possibly need to work a bit harder on the sort of transformative vision of, of being light to the world which is what you were talking about I think also this phrase um, being on the wrong side of history is one of those phrases that just needs you know in my humble opinion to be thrown um, as, as far away as possible because it's so meaningless um, and also it I mean it raises so many questions doesn't it um, but it assumes certain things about the trajectory of history doesn't it mm -hmm. and this idea that things do only get better and there's a kind of destination um, to history but when you were talking Luke I was just struck by you know how helpful that is and I think a lot of people would hear that and think that is a a positive, um, helpful vision, but they would also reflect on just how that contrasts with our everyday politics as it is at the moment and, and ask themselves, well, you know, why are we in the state that we're in? Um, what's, what's your sense of that? What, why, why have we got to the position we have when when you articulate it, it sounds eminently reasonable. Right. I think so. I think one of the important things is to again unhook our political imagination from our news feeds and from the national scene. 
we tend to only think of politics in terms of national politics and or or international politics and i think my my kind of plea to christians is to think from the local up and when we think from the local up and and we saw this during covid and i see this um where i live in in the states uh, for much of the year you know we we have hurricane weather weather can kill you in america in a way in which i'm rather blessedly free from in most of britain um you know so the hurricanes come through the freezing rain comes through the power goes out uh, and i don't i have a, i live in quite a politically diverse neighborhood i don't i don't care whether republican or democrat or what it's you know we happen to have weirdly enough a gas stove everyone else has electric stoves for some reason so like we make the soup and other people are much better at fixing i'm a dreadful academic i don't know how to fix a thing like they're better at fixing things and you know so we kind of muck in together to get by when the power is out and and so that sense of actually the reality of our lives is i'm not asking my neighbor what political affiliation is when they volunteer to pick up my kids from soccer or scouting like that's not what's on the plate. So if we think about politics as a negotiation of common life at, at a kind of neighbourhood level and how we muck in in times of emergency or at points of need, then that's then we think, actually, that does go on. That is the reality of our lives. And then we have these kind of national stories. And I think if we think about, actually, the reality of trust building and neighbourhood life, um, and how what we can do to restore that to make it a more trusting, uh, more relational place. Well, that seems eminently achievable, and that goes on a lot of the time. And Christians are brilliant at that; they're doing a lot of that. Um, and, and then the secondary matter is, how do we think the country should be run? But we tend to think, oh, how should we be the country run? Get very angry and upset about that, and forget that actually we're living a political life in our neighbours with our neighbours already. So I'm just like change change your perspective and it kind of lessens the temperature on the national thing which may or may not be important in but actually it does really matter how you get on with your neighbors that's that's much more determinative of your quality of life in many ways so um so i think yeah so that that's one key thing in that is is not to get caught in this kind of declension it's never been so bad we're so polarized I, in the american context i think people talk about polarization today i think blimey you know if i lived in 1968 oh, when the president true. had just been assassinated and martin luther king had just been assassinated and there were literally the universities were being people students were being killed by national guard i'm like that was bad <laughs> like it's yeah. way like it's it depends yes, where you stand doesn't it, it in does. terms of, i mean literally at what point in history in terms yeah. of you know, I, I suppose to so talk start the clock. It's it's always yeah. the question of when do you start the clock and what's your comparison? So if we're if we're thinking about there's there's always good and bad, uh, and and there's always the imperative to uh, kind of work with one's neighbours locally, and then it's always gonna be uh, I love this English expression, I can use it on this podcast, it's the kind of phrase I can't use in America, uh, a curate's egg. It's kind of a mixed yeah. mixed bag. Good in parts at the national level. And the crises and temperature, um, that, that's a kind of constant. Um, you know, we're, we're not living in the Second World War, um, you know, so it's, it, but, it, but there are very real crises, climate change and the rest of it, which we've got to reckon with. But I think, I think the other thing just to say about that is I think part of our problem, if, if you did want a kind of meta-analysis, it's not actually the, the politics. I think the broader 
deeper problem is what I would call a kind of crisis of institutional imagination. We basically built institutions from about 1780 to about 1910. Public libraries, modern universities, modern schooling systems, hospital systems, sewage works, you know, denominational structures. They were all invented in that kind of period. And then we stopped making institutions. And now we don't like the institutions we have. They're unwieldy, they're racist, they're sexist, they're, or they're not market-driven enough, or whatever it is. We, everyone has their pet analysis as why they don't like institutions of left and right. But we can't imagine the institutions we need to address the problems we face. And I think the real crisis is not actually about politics. It's of a failure of institutional imagination. And the reality is you can't solve collective problems without institutions. Um, And you can't do that at scale or over time transgenerationally. And institutions are just ways of solving collective problems transgenerationally and generating the knowledge and wisdom and cultivating the people with the skills and commitment to solve those problems. Um, That's what a university is. That's what a sewage works is. That's what a denominational structure is. And so I think that's our real crisis. And politics is just a manifestation of that far deeper cultural crisis, which is an institutional one. Yeah, really interesting. Um, Again, a little clue as to where I am today. Um, The town where I am is uh, was the, the birthplace of the NHS and also the location of the world's first lending library. So two really significant institutions that have contributed such a lot to our common life. Um, Luke, without wanting to kind of go down the sort of declension line that you have kind of, you know, critiqued, um, I'd love to just talk a little bit about the, the connection between the Christian story and politics, but particularly Western political democracy or politics and and of course the manifestation of that being liberal democracy um and i suppose the thought here is twofold really one is that it would seem to me that underpinning a lot of the quote unquote secular uh liberal assumptions we make about the world today including um liberal politics is the christian story or there's a, a christian tradition but equally if we're going to jettison that uh, Christian tradition, uh, we put at risk um, the gifts of that tradition, one of which, this is the kind of the point of discussion, is uh, Western liberal democracy. Uh, what do you, how do you respond to that? Is, that? is that a fair take? And what is the connection, if indeed there is one? Yeah. So I think, I think two things to say on this. Is, well, I'll say a bit more about, I think there's a profound connection between Christianity and, and democracy. Um, but I think it's important to preface that saying, I think it, the, the um, I think many traditions have an account of politics of, of the kind I drew out earlier, of the negotiation of common life. I don't think that's a distinctively Christian commitment. We can think of Aristotle, but I think notions of palavar in in west africa or or uh, the moot in viking tradition or the um uh the the uh, the wiku in the carib tradition um there's various others kind of there's various forms of this around the world um shura in islam so the the idea that you've got to kind of come together with others to kind of solve shared problems through dialogue that idea is I think prevalent around the world because I think that's just the fabric of what it means to be human um but 
I do think there is a distinctive Christian vision of politics based around neighbour love. Um, and that uh, brings a certain kind of force and commitments to that, particularly folded into, into neighbour love is love of enemies and also the possibility of forgiveness. And so I think um, the, and part of our problem going back to this split in history is we've got one set of people who want to kind of refer back to the burdens of history, slavery, patriarchy, whatever, but we're always caught, we can never get outside of that. And another set of people who want to deny those, we just need to get on and, you know, why do we have to bother with the past? And, and without some notion of forgiveness and love of enemies, you're always caught between either the terrible weight of history and the guilt of history you can't escape from that's paralyzing or a denial of that. Uh, and you're not actually going and addressing that and, and working through forgiveness and reconciliation. And therefore, uh, it always comes back to haunt you and you're living in denial of that and the realities of that. And so I think there's a very profound when we lose the positive, and this is the point the philosopher Hannah Arendt makes, uh, politics needs forgiveness because we're always going to do wrong to each other, but politics can't generate forgiveness. Um, and so there's this, I think, recover, the Christian recovery of a notion of forgiveness is crucial to our current kind of court between amnesia and the, and the, and the burdens of history at the moment we're in. So that's one thing to say. I think in terms of kind of Christianity and liberal democracy, I think there are really kind of four key commitment, Christian commitments, which which do anchor. I, d- I don't think Christians don't need democracy to be Christian, but democracy does enshrine four key commitments. And the first is really the sanctity of each person made in the image of God. And so that sense of each person shouldn't be rendered passive or voiceless. They should have some agency in kind of cultivating shared worlds of meaning actually they should both be able to contribute to and receive from in order that they might realize their likeness of god um, with and through others um, the second is a commitment to loving strangers and enemies as neighbors rather than killing them or coercing them or causing them to flee you know so dialogue a debate listening as the way we kind of deal with strangers and enemies and that kind of comes through in parliaments, councils, other other forms of non-violent assembly through which we come together to sort out our problems. And then the third, I think, is the rule of law. Uh, and this is a kind of basic premise which nobody's above the law and government is bound or limited by law. And that's a key tenet in scripture. And really where the claim is that all human political orders should be determined not by a single ruler or, or oligarchy, but by law and covenant. Um, and that's that's the kind of vision. We, by covenant, I mean mutually responsible social relationships kind of orientated to some shared vision of the good. Um, and so that, 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 that rule is through law and covenant rather than through sheer power or personal fiat or a cabal sorting things out. And then finally, I think, because of the fall, uh, democracy enshrines, there needs to be some kind of limit to concentrations of power and the exercise of power and that the idea that power corrupts. And so, and, and the recognition, the theological recognition that all human speech and action is both finite and fallen. 
And so I don't have a monopoly on wisdom. My education or ideology or class position doesn't give me an all-knowing and all-access kind of knowledge and, and agency. Uh, I have limits and my own knowledge and my own ideology and my own education uh, you know, is, is fallen and sinful. And therefore, I need others not like me. And also, when I exercise power, I need accountability. And democracy enshrines that idea as well. So I think those are there are those four very fundamental theological confessional commitments that means that I do, I would even make the bold claim that I think if we take seriously the imper- divine imperative to love our neighbours, the political form of neighbour love is democracy. Hmm. Yeah, what an interesting idea. Um, A thought, and then a question. I mean, the thought is um, our politics would be deeply transformed if forgiveness featured in it. I suppose what I'm trying to work out is where forgiveness and then accountability relate to each other. I mean, forgiveness is not just letting people get away with people. Um, But then the question would be, um, I suppose we could say that in all the mainstream political traditions, certainly within our own context here in the UK, we could identify that which is resonant with and possibly a gift from the Christian tradition. So, you know, we were kind of joking around this kind of declension thing and this emphasis on preserving, conserving. But we could say that within conservatism, there is this kind of honourable and Christian uh, tradition that is in some way can be expressed there. But at the same time, we might say, but within the Labour Party, for example, we can see there a real commitment um, historically to a vision for social justice, social change. And that in itself, in, in many ways, has been informed by the Christian story. And and true also of, of liberalism more generally, I suppose um, now with the Lib Dems, you've got the combination of historic liberalism, but also social democracy and the founding of the SDP in the 80s. But it, I mean, well, nationalism is maybe harder to deal with, but maybe there's something there too. What, what What's your kind of sense? Of, no, I think, um, I think that's, that? I think you're right. I think there are, and Christians obviously be, key in involvement and the formation and and that each of those ideologies emerges out of different strands of political theology um, there's this idea we have this secular politics it's nonsense you know all, all political ideas are really kind of theological ideas by other means um, and so I think um, uh, so I think yeah each of those traditions you just outlined and their party form, is playing off kind of central scriptural and theological commitments in many ways. We're still within the kind of moral universe of of the Christian imagine, moral imagination. I think nationalism, I think, is different. And, and I would make a key distinction. I think each of those forms is deeply patriotic and has a strong patriotic commitment. That's different from nationalism. And I think this goes back to this idea of covenant. Um, central to Christian understandings of politics, and this runs from the patristic period through medieval into particularly in Reformation debates, it really comes to the fore with Calvinists and Lutherans and stuff, is this idea, and it's building on this Christian uh, scriptural idea of covenant. The foundation of the people of God is covenantal, and covenant comes before command, and God doesn't ask, doesn't command anything prior to, there's no law 
before covenant, covenant, i.e. coming together to make a promise with God and each other, and the renewal of the people depends on the renewal of a covenantal relation. So the foundation of the people is not land, actually. That's a token of their covenant commitment to God and one another. It's not blood, actually. Uh, and it's it's not kind of a national identity. That It's this covenantal faithfulness. And the prophets hold them to account for that. And, and Christians over the millennia have really said, actually, the foundation of political community has to be we come together to make promises together. Now, in the modern period, we can look at figures like Hobbes and Locke. They move away from covenant and say, no, it's about contract. It's individuals contracting together and what binds us together is a kind of legal contract. I.e., They put law before relationship. They put procedure before actually forming the quality and character of our common life. And that's what all kind of technocratic regimes try and do, whether it's the left and the right. And that's what a lot of our modern politics has done, put law before covenant, um, contract before covenant. But nationalism does something different. So if, if technology is one, technocracy is one pathology, modern pathology, nationalism is another. It wants to find some pre-political moment outside of the difficulty of navigating virtuous relationships with different with strangers and people you find threatening by saying, no, 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 the foundation of the polity is not covenant. It's not the quality and character of our political relationships and our common life. It's blood. It's soil. It's shared ancestry. It's shared history. And those who don't, who aren't part of that history, who aren't part of that shared blood, who uh, aren't part of, who don't share this particular identity. They don't belong. They're not part of it. And if we look back in the early 20th century, figures like whether it's Reinhold Niebuhr or Jacques Maritain or Karl Barth or Dietrich Bonhoeffer or a whole range of people saw exactly the same move and Christians seduced into nationalist movements. And, and a great example of this is someone like Action Francaise in France, which emerged in the late 19th century, grew quite very big in the 20s and 30s, and ended up being a kind of fascist, part of the fascist regime in Vichy, France. And uh, they basically, they, the leaders of that were explicitly not Christian. They, they said, we're not Christian, but we do view Christianity as the anchor for the glories of French civilization. And so they said to the, the deal they said to the Christians was, uh, and thousands and thousands of Catholics. In fact, so many Catholics joined it that the Pope had to issue an edict saying you can't get communion and we'll excommunicate you if you're a member of Action Francaise. That's how serious they took it. But their, their kind of, literally the translation of their kind of banner was family, faith and flag. Uh, and they said, we will defend against the wicked communists over there and the secularists and the kind of, um, and the Jews, it was deeply anti-Semitic, and the kind of migrants coming in, will defend, will defend family and flag like in the name of Christian civilization. They were not interested in confessing the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior or people becoming Christians. They saw Christianity as the cultural prop to anchoring essentially a secular civilization, um, and I think that's what we see abroad today. Uh, that's what's going on in Europe. Uh, in Italy, that's what Trump is about. That's what that's what Steve Bannon thinks. Um, so I think we, we're in, and it's always a seduction. It's not like there aren't real enemies to Christian visions of life out there, 
but we always have to resist the seductions both of technocracy and of nationalism, which are deeply anti-political and a refusal of this covenantal basis. And I think that's a real struggle. It's a spiritual struggle, it's a pastoral struggle, uh, and it's a political struggle to really recover and ally with those who see it's about building a common life, not resorting to anti-political means to secure ourselves in the world. So fascinating, Luke. Um, It's been, yeah, brilliant sort of hearing you break things down from just that sort of state level into a bit more of the kind of the everyday. Um, So I suppose maybe potentially final question um, as we kind of come into land, but so I'm, you know, as I'm sure lots of our listeners are, a Christian living in the 21st century. Um, what does it look like for me to engage well with politics? So I, I know you spoke earlier, I think your phrase was um, something about sort of living from the local up. I may have mm-hmm. paraphrased that. Um, yeah. But so, yeah, that I think was one really great suggestion. Um, any any sort of final thoughts of, of, of how that can look in our in our everyday lives? Yeah, no, it's a wonderful question. I mean, I think... It, it's, I think that building out of that, it's, and it's this question really, and, and it's very, very basic. It's, it's how are we building trust? Because I think alongside the failure of institutional imagination I talk about, I think one of our problems, and it's always a problem, is the breakdown in trust. We don't trust each other and we can't hold tension with each other amidst disagreement. And that, that's in families. We, again, we saw it during COVID and Brexit. Um, uh, this this breakdown in trust. So I think the most fundamental thing, um, and, and so just to say also on that, whether it's in the economy or in politics, if you lose trust, everything collapses really quickly. You know, we saw that with the 2007, 2008 banking crisis. You know, I have arguments with my colleagues here at Duke. They get very kind of, economics is this and procedure. And I'm like, no, no, no it, it, forget it. Like all, all your numbers is fine. But when you people lose trust in the banking system, you basically the whole thing collapses in about a week. So without trust, our economies collapse without trust, our political system. So we can have a very sophisticated democratic checks and balances and systems. But if there isn't social trust, the whole thing's collapsed. And we saw that on January the 6th here in the States. So I think anything Christians can do to build trust and to and to listen first, to not assume you already know what the other person thinks, to not jump to judgment. I often use the example of my cat, Marvin. My, my cat, Marvin, is a very good listener, uh, but he listens because he's waiting to pounce uh, on some unsuspecting mouse or, or creature. Um, and, and that's how a lot of us think about listening. We're listening, ah, they've just transgressed my ideological commitment on point two B and I'm gonna here's my talking point to kind of bat him over the head. And that's what that's the world of Twitter that's the Twitter verse or X verse as we should probably now call it. Um but that's not the kind of listening I'm I'm talking about. It's genuinely listening. And in, in the act of listening, I'm say to you, you matter. You're someone who's worth listening to. You have dignity. You have a story to tell that's different to mine. Uh, and let me ask you about your story. And so a good example of this would be, I was doing some work here this was with uh, folk at Duke who are very concerned about um, uh, evangelical disengagement with kind of questions about climate change and science. 
And so they were going into church and they had big data and they were basically telling, and, and I said, what do you do? And and because they were very concerned that it was not really, they weren't getting their message across. And that, so they said, oh, we, we go through his data and we show how, you know, Southeast of America is going to be really effective. So I said, basically you tell people that their lives are wrong and they're idiots for pursuing. That that's not a good place to begin. Why don't you ask them about what they love and cherish? And this is a big hunting and fishing kind of area. Um, I said, you know, where did they go duck hunting? Where do they go fishing? What would it mean for their children and their children's children to also be able to go hunting and fishing in those woods? And and what are the conditions that would make that possible? So that's a story of love, and that's a story of what people cherish and want honoured, and what they what they might fear is being desecrated. Um, and therefore, let's begin with those stories, and that that also is a place of trust. And you're also saying they matter, and their lives matter. And so I think. Christians beginning with listening, and I think that's a divine imperative as well. There's a lovely line from St. Ambrose. He said, he's quoting Leviticus, the Shema, and he says, uh, uh, speak not, hearken, listen, that you fail not in, thou ta- in thy tongue. Um, and, and it's this idea that the, the word of God comes first through listening, and we're saved in the Reformation of ex by hearing. So the sense of we, we hear God and we hear with God the people around us. And that should be the beginning of our, the first act is one of listening. And so I think just building trust through listening first and uh, is the most fundamental thing because without trust, we don't have politics. Um, without politics, we can't live. So that would be my most fundamental thing is, is training ourselves in habits of listening and storytelling um, and listening to stories. And then I think very basic things like... Um, you know, beginning with kind of local forms of involvement, whether that's community organizing, whether that's uh, helping out in kind of preserve the local library, whether that's all sorts of local endeavors and learning the craft of politics as building a common life through different local initiatives. And one, if one begins to look, we'll see, you'll see all sorts of things, local things, uh, setting up a community garden, uh, all sorts of things, but initiatives that bring people together uh, across lines of difference in pursuit of shared goods on which all our flourishing depends at a local level. And that is through where we learn the craft of doing politics, the very basic day-to-day craft of doing politics, which, which we've forgotten and need to learn again. Mm. Amazing. Uh, on that note, Paul, shall we... Um... Should we wrap up, do you think? I feel like I've got lots to digest. I think it's a good idea. I'd love, Lou, as you go, just um, give us a prediction for this coming year. Uh, it could be either side of the pond. I don't mind. Uh, well, I'll stick to the safe one because it, it's, if you'd asked me a couple of months ago, I would have said Trump would have won over here, but I'm not sure now. Uh, so just on the national scene. Um, but I think uh, there's a pretty safe bet, I would say, that, Labour's probably going to win on the national scene. But I think uh, the my kind of broader prediction is I think actually this vision of a kind of local driven forms of politics is going to gain traction as mm-hmm. because part of the disenchantment with the national scene, people are going to find forms of expression. And I think we do, we will see more and more of that as um, as, as people try and find outlets for building a common life. So that would be my positive prediction is that, that we will see people try and, and it, 
find non-state centric modes of political practice um, as they as they realize that national politics isn't the answer to everything and isn't the sum total of politics. Hmm. Good stuff. Thank you. Um, so, as we mentioned earlier, Luke has a, a book that's just come out, um, which uh, you can buy on um, online, and it's called A Primer in Christian Ethics, Christ and the Struggle to Live Well, um, published by Cambridge University Press. Um, anything you'd like to say about the book quickly, Luke, other than that, obviously, it will change people's lives? <laughs> uh, it's very readable. It is a kind of overview and introduction to kind of moral and political Christian thought. And a lot of the things I've kind of talked about are kind of unpacked um, and in, in the book. And it'll, it'll give you a kind of good read on our contemporary moment, but within a deeply scriptural and theological frame of reference. Brilliant. Well, yeah, so if you've enjoyed today, um, head online and, and buy Luke's book. Um, but Luke, thank you so much for joining us. It's been um, a joy and really uh, refreshing and enlightening. So thank you so much. Well, delight to be with you. Thanks for having it's me. It's been fun. Thanks so much, Luke. Good to see you again. Bye. Well, what did you think, Grace? Are you any more political now? Um, do you know what, Paul? I, I think I now would consider myself a political being after that, which I'm pretty chuffed A political about, animal, indeed. Something like that, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure I'd go that far yet, to be honest. Um, no, but in all seriousness, I thought I thought it was fascinating. I thought Luke had a really hit the way he, even though we sort of had questions that we wanted to ask about the Christian story and politics. I thought the whole way that he spoke about politics felt like faith just was really naturally intertwined. Um, and I think, as I say, as as everyone knows, coming at this conversation from somebody who who wasn't hugely in inverted commas political, but I think actually that made me realise that's probably because my version of politics has been so limited to just what we see in the political sphere. That's what comes on the news, what part you know, what's happening in political parties, which politicians have promised things they couldn't deliver. And I think um, I love the way he sort of simplified it to actually. It's, it's to do with how humans get along with each other or agree to disagree or kind of live, ac- um, live across lines of, of difference. And I think I sort of, I've come away thinking actually, rather than almost just feeling, yeah, constantly a bit bewildered at, gosh, is our country always going to feel like this? Actually, on my local level, on my street, um, in my friendship groups, how, how does that look for me to be, as you say, a political being or animal um, in that space. So, yeah, I think that I think it was a really applicable takeaway, um, which I, if I'm honest, I wasn't expecting from the conversation. Um, what did you think? How about you? Yeah, I thought it was a more hopeful conversation than I hopeful. thought we might have. Um, and also, but also I thought earthed. So I didn't feel that, you know, Luke is an academic and there's, um, you know, always the risk, isn't it? That the sort of the, the, the world of the academy and what is happening um, on the ground can um, can look, can be very different. But actually, I thought what he offered um, had real practical mm. significance uh, and was really helpful and, and hopeful in that regard. I thought it's interesting that I think there is this wider conversation at the moment um, around if our politics is broken, why are we looking to politics 
um, as the answer to that brokenness, yeah. do we not have to, if you like, renegotiate politics and have more of a, a local emphasis, which I think might be right. And I suppose that then leads to questions around how we devolve power to people. Um, uh, and maybe sometimes there's a question about whether if you just devolve it to other in institutions, even if they're more local, they still kind of get in the way and that sort of thing. So, I mean, it kind of raises lots of questions, but I thought it was a hopeful conversation, uh, made me a bit more, um, helped me actually in terms of this whole historical thing of mm -hmm. um, uh, seeing that with uh, a more healthy perspective, I think. I mean, I think it can be tempting either to be, you know, a, a pessimist and think, you know, the present is is bad and the future is inevitably worse or to be uh, an optimist and to assume that everything gets better and mm. we're, you know, increasingly progressing towards, you know, better ways of doing things. Of course, n neither of those things are true at any particular yeah. point in history. Yeah. So I find that interesting as well. And Yeah, um, I loved his, um, he spoke, didn't he, about the, the Sultan Lights verse. And I that was that really was good, really, wasn't that it? That was quite a profound... Yeah you know, sort of grounded in, in sort of biblical truth. But actually, as you say, that that's what it looks like to have that tension between not looking in the past and, oh, wasn't life great when, but equally things will only be better. Well, we know they'll be better when Jesus comes again, but, but actually we're, we're, this whole podcast is about how do we live in the, in the now? And, you know, yeah. and I think um, it made me think a bit about conversations that I, have had with grandparents um which can sometimes be frustrating for that reason of you know yeah I shouldn't generalize all grandparents but certain grandparents you know <laughs> wasn't life great when or yeah. oh if we could get Britain back to da, da, da. and I think um yeah next time one of those comes up I think I'm gonna bring out the salt and light verse in Matthew yes. and see what that See I think we need national well. service, Grace. I think that would be the answer to everything. I yeah. think you're right. I thought that was really interesting, really helpful, that emphasis on salt as a preservative and the sort of conserving that, which is good, but then equally the light in terms of this sort of hopeful um, uh, sort of, rad in a way, radicalism. I mean, obviously, you know, conserving can be radical, but this sort of sense of, you know, dissatisfaction, what is. So a kind of commitment towards something that is better and, mm -hmm. and this need to hold both of those things. And I guess any one of us might have more of a propensity to one of those things than the Absolutely. other. But, you know, working together, you can bring the best out of those, um, of both out of those things. I thought the other thing that he did, which I think some would be, would be great would be um for political parties to in in a sense recover or rediscover some of their own story so mm -hmm. you know that there are um good traditions in our um established mainstream political parties um and part of the problem luke seemed to suggest is that they've sort of lost sight of that yeah um so that would be an exciting thing to recover whilst of course not wanting to go down that kind of declension heresy that he was talking about where it's exactly. all about recovering the past so um yeah, interesting there's a lot of tensions lots of tensions to hold in balance sure. um well if you enjoyed this episode of the whole life um we are very glad and we would love you to subscribe leave a review tell us what you think um and also tell your friends about it uh but until next time from paul and me uh this was the whole life and goodbye goodbye